you know, what is it about the 19th century that you think is so um, intriguing for us now? Like we're in 2022, like why would picking up the broad view? I mean, I know it's more than the 19th century, it's earlier too, but yeah. um, you know, why are these periods still speaking to us as readers? Mm. Gosh, there's so many reasons. I mean, I'm all, over, all about the 19th century. And I think one of the things that's always attracted me to 19th century American literature is just how queer it is. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am really excited to be offering another Broadview Press themed episode. Um, today, I'm actually joined by Dr. Christopher Luby, who works at UCLA as a professor in the English department. I just want to mention a few of his specialties because they're really fascinating. So his interests are in American literature in the 18th and 19th centuries sexuality studies, historical and cultural approaches to literature, print culture, um, formalist methods to approaching literature, and um, a specific excerpt in his bio really stands out to me, so hopefully we'll dig into it. But how he reads literature and the effects of reading and dynamic exchanges between bodies and pleasures of the history of sexuality, which, you know, is right up our alley here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and especially with my approach to research. So without further ado, welcome, Christopher, to this episode. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for asking me to have this conversation with you and to talk about the Broadview Anthology of American Literature, which is forthcoming, I think, yes. later this summer. Yes, and I'm so excited to, um, you know, go through, especially the instructor edition of the Broadview Anthology of American Literature, because I've like, I've gotten a preview copy for this interview. And there's so much that's going to be out in the summer. So like, there's parts that I really can't wait to see, which is, you know, up our research alley, and I'm sure you can speak directly to this, but there's a gender and sexuality section, which looks mm -hmm. completely brand new. Totally new. Absolutely. That was one of the things I was going to highlight for you. So I'm glad you've already seen it. So what are some exciting updates to this revised edition of the American Literature Anthology that, you know, readers can expect to see that you've been a part of, Christopher? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. But just uh, to make it clear, this is not a revised edition. This is a completely new anthology. Oh, wow. That um, was, you know, basically done from the ground up. Um, and, you know, one of the many things that we aim to do in making it distinctive was to make the contents considerably more diverse than some of the, than American literature antho anthologies have been traditionally, but even more diverse than the newest of the new revised other American literature anthologies. Um, so, uh, and one of the ways that we wanted to highlight that was by foregrounding 
Native American indigenous literature and culture, by foregrounding uh, Latinx American literature and culture. And so even though in general, the anthology is organized chronologically as almost all anthologies are, we also, we had a big discussion in one of our editorial meetings about this. Should we violate chronology selectively in order uh, not to start the anthology as where most of them start, you know, with William Bradford's of Plymouth Plantation and uh, settler colonial Puritan white American literature. So in fact, the volume A, which is beginnings to 1820, uh, opens with a, a long section of indigenous oral and visual literatures. And then that's followed by uh, a section called Civilizations in Contact, uh, which has texts from the Caribbean, from Mexico, from Florida and New Mexico, from the Northeastern woodlands, from New France, um, and from California. Oh, wow. um, really to highlight the multilingual nature of American literature, as most of us want to think about it today, and the multicultural nature of American literature. And then there's Cabeza de Vaca, and then there's John Smith and William Bradford. Uh, they're in there, to be sure, um, because people want to teach them um, and because they're great. Um, but they're definitely, I don't know how to put it, not given a back seat to these mm -hmm. other literary fields, but... but uh, but not given precedence. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that makes a pretty, a pretty strong statement. Um, so that's one thing that's distinct about it. I think also this anthology has a great deal more um, popular literary texts, excerpts in some cases from popular literary texts. Like there's a long uh, excerpt from E.D.E. and Southworth's The Hidden Hand. Um, mm in that gender and sexuality section that you, uh, the gender and sexuality se section, which I'm really excited uh, to see in there, there's all kinds of ephemera really from newspapers and magazines of the time uh, that paint a, uh, a robust picture of norms of gender and sexuality in the colonial period and in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, but also challenges to those norms. Um, so those are a few of the ways I think that the anthology is gonna stand out from, stand out from the crowd, not to diss anybody else's anthology, but you know, um, uh, this one is governed by some uh, principles mm -hmm. that I think will make it attractive. I hope will make it attractive to uh, teachers who are actually trying to disrupt, you know, the received vision of American literature as such. Yeah, and I think, well, it's good to know now that um, this is a completely new Broadview anthology that's being brought out. Um, do you, you know, how long of a process is it to actually bring out a completely new anthology? Like to actually, I mean, even like how many editors are there? Um, how many conversations did you all have? Like you mentioned an editorial meeting. So yeah, that's a, you know, very novel process for everyone listening to this. Yeah, and I'm happy to give you as much insight as I can. 
um, you know, the process started a few years ago. I'd have to like look back through my email to remember exactly when I first uh, got approached by Don LaPan, who is the founder of Broadview Press um, and also its CEO, uh, but also is the co-managing editor of the Anthology of American Literature. Oh, he and Laura Bazard are the co-managing editors. So, uh, and one thing I really want to uh, share with you is that, you know, there are, let's see, there are 12 of us who serve as general editors, and then there are 80 some other academics who are called editorial advisors who mm -hmm. got consulted, you know, in, for one particular author or one particular text given their expertise. So that's already a really huge team that Broadview has assembled. Um, and it's actually Don and Laura, the co-managing editors and others on their staff who've done the heavy lifting on really pulling together all the materials for this anthology. So a lot of the work, the vast majority of the work is done in-house at Broadview. Um, and then they brought in the 12 of us who are general editors to meet periodically and advise them on certain tricky questions or look at a proposed table of contents that was way too big and make hard decisions about uh, what was gonna be dropped and make other hard decisions. Um, as you've probably seen, there's the print version of the Broadview Anthology of American Literature, but then there's a website that's adjunct to it. And there's a lot, a lot of material that's on the website. So that was another kind of decision that the general editors were brought in to help with. What is going to be in the print volume and what is going to be linked to it um, on the website? And what, you know, we just have to sacrifice because it's a big fat, it's two volumes. Volume A is uh, the beginnings to 1820 and volume B is 1820 to reconstruction. And there'll be a C and a D, which they're already working on. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's yeah. going to eventually go into the contemporary. Yeah, moment. it will. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, was this a project that you thought when you started your academic literary career that you would be a part of an anthology eventually? I didn't think so, to tell you the truth. And I remember when Don approached me, invited me to be one of the general editors, I had to think about it a little bit uh, because I have only very rarely used an anthology mm. of this kind in my teaching. And that's partly because here at UCLA, uh, we're on the quarter system. We have three 10-week quarters, which goes by really quickly. And before I got here, our American literature survey is actually um, has six legs to it. There's beginning to 1775, there's 1775 to 1820-something, there's 1820-something to 1850-something. And so given how you know, finely diced our mm -hmm. upper level American literature survey is um, a big anthology just, you know, it's too much to use in 10 weeks and too much to ask students to buy since we wouldn't be using enough material from it. So I'm trying to rethink that now because I am so enthusiastic about this. And it might be that 
you know, I, I could convince one of my colleagues, like let's say the colleague who's teaching the beginnings to 1775, and then mm -hmm. I'm teaching 1775 to 1820, if we both agreed to use this anthology, um, that might work. Uh, yeah, well, and I really love, like you're bringing this model that's specific to UCLA. I mean, how exciting that it's, actually broken into those branches of American literature. I mean, to really like dig deep into each of those periods. Um, you know, I only had two American Lit surveys. I had, um, mm. you know, American Lit one was stopping at the um, reconstruction period. And then American Lit two picks up into the contemporary and in the, you know, 21st century. But I don't remember my American Lit two because it was covered by my AP course, but that's oh, a whole okay. other, you know, because we did a lot um, with a modern um, 20th century and then into the 21st century when I was in high school. But oh. um, I do really like that kind of breaking that up at UCLA. So shout out to your department. That's a really, it's wonderful to hear that that's still thriving because there's so many state universities or just colleges in general that literature programs have kind of just gotten rid of survey. Yeah. Um, I know. Um, which no, I, I like our version of it. I get no credit for it because it pre-existed me here, but I like it. Yeah, and I really am a spokesperson for surveys because I just think it's such a great um, model to understand all of the different trends of literature. And, you know, I think you need that kind of starting point to then eventually dig deeper into an analysis. Like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I you know, even though uh, our uh, our survey is broken up into all those pieces, and of in recent years, I've only been assigned to teach the eighteen sixty five to nineteen hundred leg of it, you know, which I totally love. Um, but I always do things chronologically. I'm a big believer in chronology. I know these days there's queer temporality and we're supposed to be mixing things up and not being so linear, but nevertheless, I think for purposes of education, it's good to take things chronologically and see what writer B makes of writer A and what writer C makes of writer B and writer A, and, you know, how they build upon one another. Yeah, well, and I think what an anthology why I always love having these anthology conversations with Broadview um, Press is because like an anthology is not something that just has to happen in a university, especially like this is a public humanities podcast. So some are from universities, some are the general public who just loves literature. They love going to their public library. An anthology is available at a public library. And what better way to really dig deep into a period that you're in, interested in? And they're accessible texts because they are not theoretical, right? Like this doesn't have different literary angles and psychoanalytic, feminist, queer. It's the text itself and close reading. And yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that this now exists from Broadview because I've loved Broadview's um, Victorian anthology. Mm. Um, so, you know, they had so much, they have so many, um, uh, like British anthologies that have come out. So it's wonderful to see now they're turning their eye towards the American, um, massive canon. 
Yeah, I know. And it's many of the same people. So one of the things that the other general editors and I are really appreciative of is that Don and Laura and their whole staff, they've done this before with the Broadview Anthology of British Literature, and they know what they're doing. They're all very scholarly. Um, they have great expertise. Uh, so, and a lot of the, uh, the paratextual material, like the introductions and the footnotes and so forth, they often had us review them, uh, but they're mainly, mainly generated in-house by the staff at Broadview. Mm. Um, and they've just done a magnificent job, I have to say. So yeah. I've tried to be associated with it, but I feel like they are the ones who really deserve the credit for it. Yeah. And I mean, like, so what are some, you know, who are some authors that you're just really excited or, um, you know, you knew that maybe you were in charge? Like, I don't know, to like speak to your own experience, like, were you in charge more thematically? Were you in charge with the authors that were picked? Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't say I was in charge of anything, um, but like all the other editors, I made suggestions. Like when we saw an initial draft of the table of contents, you know, we were supposed to identify things that were missing that we would like to see in there. Uh, so, you know, I've had this other editorial project of my own going on for a while, this series called Q19, which is published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, and, you know, my experience doing that kind of queer editorial work might have had something to do with why Broadview asked me uh, to be on this team. Uh, but, for example, one of my Q19 volumes is this novel by Margaret J.M. Sweat called Ethel's Love Life from 1859, sometimes called the first American lesbian novel. I don't think that's exactly right, but anyway, it's definitely a queer novel. Uh, and so there's going to be a long chapter from Ethel's Love Life in the Broadview Anthology. Um, one of my other Q19 editions, the first one, in fact, uh, was an anthology of queer short stories from the 19th century called The Man Who Thought Himself a Woman and Other Queer 19th Century Short Stories. Um, and the title story from that volume, this anonymous story called The Man Who Thought Himself a Woman, is going to be in the uh, the Broadway Anthology of American Literature. Oh, wonderful. Uh, it's a really, really wonderful story published anonymously, yeah. um, but nevertheless, uh, yeah. extraordinary story from the 1850s about wow, a man. That's early. Okay. Really early. Yeah. Because um, I'm always reminded of, I'm, I might not get the full title right, but oh, there's, is it something about the monk or... I don't know. It'll come to, it's like a Quaker. It has a Quaker title. Um, uh, the Quaker City? There you go. Thank you. The Quaker City. The Quaker um, City or the Monks of Monk Hall. There you go. There is the Monks. I knew Monk was in it somehow. But the Quaker um, City, because I know it has this like very Philadelphia, brotherly love, queer kind of narrative. But um, I'm so glad that you've um, been part of Q19, which, um, you know, is first how I knew about you. Christopher, huh. I have, I have um, some of your Q19 texts on my bookshelf. And oh, good. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> no, and they are so, it's so wonderful to recover those um, texts that are just not in print anymore and to actually have a press behind you like um, UPenn to really be eager to bring these texts out. 
Yeah, I've been very grateful to them. I mean, there's been some editorial staff changes at the press, um, but they are still, you know, backing this series. In fact, I have a fourth volume in, I'm supposed to get proofs later this week. Uh, it's a, a little known novel by Charles Warren Stoddard. What is the um, novel called? It's called For the Pleasure of His Company. Oh. And it has a long, it has two subtitles actually. For the Pleasure of His Company, An Affair of the Misty City Thrice Told by Charles Ooh. Warren Stoddard. Oh, what year is that from? Well, it's actually published in 1903. Oh. So I'm venturing a little bit out of the 19th century. Hmm. Uh, but he began writing it as far as I can tell in the 1870s and 1880s and worked on it for a really, really long time. And it went through a lot of revisions. Um, but it's the only novel that Charles Warren Stoddard ever wrote or published. And uh, it's really interesting for a million reasons. Uh, maybe when we get to working on the Broadview Anthology of American Literature, C and D, yes, yes. can convince them to uh, put an excerpt in. Um, but it's set in San Francisco, as you might imagine. Mm. And it's about a young aspiring poet named Paul Clitheroe uh, and his queer existence. Um, you know, it's a, both a sort of Bildungsroman and that it's about him like trying to get a start in life and not starve. Uh, but it's also about his relationships with other men mm -hmm. and a very queer relationship with a young woman uh, who's another aspiring writer. And they uh, become very intimate with one another, although they're not uh, erotically in involved with one another. Um, but they become very good friends and they share this ambition to write novels. So it's also a very self-reflexive novel about people writing novels. And they have interesting uh, theoretical discussions about what a novel should be like. And his friend, uh, who likes to be called Jack, uh, she thinks a novel has to be more or less linear and also have a love plot. And Paul Clitheroe is appalled by that. He doesn't want his novel to be anything like that. He wants it to be about uh, his hero's relationships with multiple people uh, without any telos, um, no ending in marriage or permanent attachment or anything like that. So it's, it's an interesting novel formally uh, because it, it's in three parts, thrice told. Um, and it goes over the same period of time, uh, three times. Oh, but with wow. Paul interacting in each of the three books with a whole different set of friends and acquaintances. Um, so it, it's like ripe for a queer temporality reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it ends. So my volume will have this novel, but we'll also have three of Charles Warren Stoddard's South Sea sketches. Okay. Because at the end of this novel, Paul Clitheroe, he's on a yacht in the Pacific, um, and they're uh, passing by Hawaii, uh, which he's visited before, as Charles Warren Stoddard did many, many times. And so the novel just ends with him jumping ship into the kayak of some uh, indigenous men that he uh, was friends with before, and he just goes, he just goes off. Hmm. 
so oh, this sounds wonderful. When is this about? When is it? When is it going to come out? You think? It's currently scheduled for March 2023. So oh, it's, good. Not too far. Okay, we have like. It's not too far, but less it's a than a year. Too but far yeah, for yeah, me. yeah. Yes, yes. Um, well, definitely, we'll have to keep our eyes out for that. I know I'm going to uh, want to have that in my hands. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think also something in the anthology that stands out to me is, you know, why the 19th century was always fascinating and still fascinating to me as I, you know, write on Whitman and queer theory. I mean, I'm a Whitman. Whitman, Oscar Wilde are my main focal points and Edith Wharton basically Whitman and his reception so anyone who got queer inspiration including Edith Wharton who I'm I'm a Gilded Age fanatic um I love the HBO series um but I really like that um there's so much to learn from the 19th century with all these changes in America these whether it be you know race relations, social class, religious relations, immigrant uh, communities, um, technological advancements with the industrialization period, right? Massive wealth that's gained, but also the other side of that coin. So, you know, what is it about the 19th century that you think is so um, intriguing for us now? Like we're in 2022, like why would picking up the broad view. I mean, I know it's more than the 19th century. It's earlier too, but yeah. um, you know, why are these periods still speaking to us as readers? Mm. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gosh, there's so many reasons. I mean, I'm all over, all about the 19th century. And I think one of the things that's always attracted me to 19th century American literature is just how queer it is. Mm -hmm. um, so as I've been working on working with the folks at Broadview on this anthology, I've often had in mind this quip that I don't know if you ever heard it before, but uh, the late pioneering uh, LGBT studies scholar Robert K. Martin. Uh, yes, um, yes, I use his work as a yeah, touchstone. Mm -hmm. His work is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but he, uh, there's a, a scholar at the University of Montreal named Eric Savoy, who also does some queer 19th century American literature. And he, I once heard him uh, relate this anecdote, uh, but now he's put it in print. Uh, he says, you know, when he met Robert K. Martin, Eric was a, a graduate student at the time. He asked Robert, like, have you ever thought of editing an anthology of queer American literature? Mm. And, and Robert said, no, because it already exists. It's called the Norton Anthology. <laughs> and there's some truth to that. 
Um, but nevertheless, in working on the Broadview anthology, uh, there have been other things that we've wanted to import. So, hmm. you know, Melville is still there and Dickinson is still there, of course, and a lot of Whitman is there. Um, yeah, there's a large Whitman section. I was excited to see how much is there of his poetry. Oh, yeah. Um, and oh, and his prose. Yeah. And you actually have um, Democratic Vistas, which yeah. is exciting. Um, but yeah, well, also for everyone listening, Robert K. Martin was um, iconic as a gay scholar who came out with the homosexual tradition, right? Homosexual tradition in American poetry. American yeah. poetry, which is like how I found his Whitman reading. And he was yeah. very experimental in his method of interpreting. And it's just so wonderful to have those texts there as that beginning of un re recovering queer authors or like reading them from a gay angle. And, you know, we wouldn't be here with our own interpretations without that. I know I wouldn't be here without those interpretations and, you know, your interpretations too, Christopher. Well, thank you. But I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing uh, without Robert, because I think, well, I met him personally when I was in graduate school. Um, and that was one of the many things that got me interested in uh, queer studies. You know, back then it was lesbian and gay studies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but Robert, you know, was definitely influential for steering me in this direction. It took me a while, but, you know, I had some other things to do first. Yeah. Uh, but I, I really... You know, I, I regret that he's gone. Um, it's too bad. Yeah. Well, I think that um, what I love to see in the themes that are, um, well, what would you call these sections? Like gender and sexuality. There's one on race. Like, do they have a certain name? These thematic, I guess maybe they're contextualizing moments yeah. in these literary periods. They do have a name. There are any number of these little sections and they're called contexts, colon. So this one is context, gender and sexuality. And then it's a whole bunch of short excerpts, as I mentioned before, from letters, from biographies, from newspapers, from magazines, a lot of visual material as well. Um, you know, for instance, they have their, they, we've included this crazy poem called The Counter Jumper. Oh, I've heard of ever. this. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a parody of Whitman. It's written in a sort of parodic Whitman style, uh, but it's about, you know, what back then was called a counter jumper, which was a dry goods clerk who was stereotypically uh, effeminate. Um, yeah, I was going to say it's like a caricature of a queer man. Yeah, it's a right? caricature. Right. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of a little indecent, but it's it's interesting how they parody Whitman. Um, I remember when my Whitman like um, scholar friend brought it to all of us to read. Um, so I'm so glad. Like, I love how, like you said, ephemera, and to explain that to the public, like that there's, how would you explain ephemera? Um, things that, you know, came and went. Mm -hmm. um, things that... Uh, you know, some ephemera, of course, has been lost, but some of it uh, has been retained and can is out there to be rediscovered. Um, yeah. So like newspaper clippings and... Newspaper clippings, popular illustrations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
things that we now throw away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Letters (laughs) that I kind of wonder what's going to be our, like what's going to be our print left in this world, social media, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it'll be an interesting way that people interpret our social media interactions. Um, Mm. So, you know, I think as we're nearing the end of the time, I'm just, you know, want to ask you, I never want to ask that question of who's your favorite author, because, you know, I know when people try to ask me that I get flustered. Um, But, you know, who are some authors that are included in this anthology that you're just really, you know, you always return to You're you're excited for readers to engage with? Oh, yeah, I have many, many, many. But let me mention just a couple. So from the A volume, the beginnings to 1820. So we're really early. Um, two of the things that I think I was instrumental in getting in are some excerpts from the diary of Puritan minister, Michael Wigglesworth. I don't know if you've ever come across mm-hmm. this diary before, um, but it was you know, discovered in uh, the Massachusetts Historical Society back in the mid 20th century and the great Puritan historian Edmund Morgan edited it and brought it out, um, although he carefully didn't discuss certain things about it. Uh, but in this diary, Michael Wigglesworth, uh, he, he writes it when he is recently graduated from Harvard, but is now a tutor at Harvard. Hmm. And he's obsessed by any number of things, but at the top of his list is he feels He has excessive affection for his students, who are, of course, all men, a few years younger than he is. And he's having nocturnal emissions. And what he calls filthy dreams and nocturnal emissions. Um, And so I got them to put some of those excerpts from Michael Wigglesworth's diary in there, uh, because it's just, uh, I mean, they're fascinating to read as a window into a Puritan minister's anxieties about his uh, erotic inclinations, um, but also because it's it's really hard to figure out how much he knows about himself hmm. because he, during his waking hours, he feels like he cares too much for his students. He has too much love for them. Hmm. And then he has these erotic dreams and nocturnal emissions, and he doesn't seem to connect the dots explicitly. So I teach this all the time. And that's one of the things we try to figure out is to what degree was he conscious of uh, what was going on in his unconscious? Hmm. And then another thing, this is also from volume A, is uh, a good excerpt from this book called The Female Review, uh, which was actually authored by a man named Herman Mann. uh, But it purports to be the autobiography of a woman named Deborah Sampson who cross-dressed as a man uh, in order to fight in the American Revolution. Um, so it's kind of her memoir as told to this guy, Herman Mann. And it's a really, really fascinating uh, book, which has gotten a little bit of attention lately in trans studies mm. um, and a little bit of debate actually about whether it would be appropriate or accurate to describe Deborah Sampson as trans. Hmm. Um, that's well, something I yeah, but not taking so, position on. Yeah, yeah. But it's so interesting that, you know, I'm glad that these materials are now 
here and like with that minister that you brought up what what year is or time was he writing these diaries yeah this is very very early it's in the 1650s wow okay yeah, mid 17th century so yeah very early um, even before the salem witch trials in 1692 yeah. do you have is there anything about the witch trials oh there must be no. I'd have to page through the yeah. I'll have to like look through the table of contents again. Um, because I um know definitely Benjamin Franklin has to be in volume A somehow. Oh yeah, Benjamin Franklin um, is there. But I wonder if like a lot of his um, you know, um parody pieces that he wrote for newspapers. Um there's like so many witty um, you know, entries he writes. When he's doing his uh, almanac, the yeah, almanac. Yeah, yeah. No, there definitely um, is some of that in there. Oh, good. Look, but like you're saying, there's, you know, you don't have to find the exact one, Christopher. But like what you're saying is there's so much taste of every, you know, decade and, you know, type of identity. And I think that's so important because I was like browsing through. So it's wonderful to see that there's so many slave narratives, but, you know, it's not just the slave narratives. Like you said, there's indigenous literature. Like to read people of color, you don't have to only read a slave narrative. Like there is so much more. There's Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, who I love as a poet. And I know that there's a large section dedicated to her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm just so excited for everyone to actually get their hands on this. So Dude. I think like, what is the easiest way, you know, for people to actually purchase this brand new anthology of American literature from Broadview? Oh, I, I think there are so many different ways. I mean, I haven't looked at Amazon to see if it's available there yet, but you could certainly buy it directly from Broadview by going to their website or order, pre-order mm -hmm. a copy of it since it's not quite uh, uh, in print yet, but it will yes. be soon. Almost, and I can't wait because I haven't gotten my print copy yet. Um, do you have a print copy with you, Christopher? No, I don't. I ah, don't think okay. It's a secret. I have, I have access to a digital copy of it. I, but... I want to see the cover. Do you know what the cover is? I do. <gasps> That's another thing that the general editors uh, looked at uh, very, very carefully um, because we wanted... Uh, some of the possible covers that they showed to us seem to us to have uh, political implications that mm. would be a little at odds with the purposes of the anthology. So there was one, there's a famous painting, I forget who it's by, of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. And I think there's maybe a slave or a Native American in the background. And we all just thought, no, we don't want the cover to be a famous white man yeah. with figures of other races subordinated. Yeah, I would say the founding fathers would be difficult to have on the front cover in this current moment. Yeah, I mean, it's um, certainly an interesting. So anyway, the covers as they stand are um, textiles. Oh. So I think one of them is a, you know, a pattern from a, uh, an old quilt. Oh, wow. And okay. another one I think is a, uh, beaded, um, 
bag of some court of some kind, a Native American beaded accessory. So it's like more of the. So it seems like I love that the cover went more for texture and for the aesthetic style of color and yeah, like a patchwork, the patchwork quilt of identity in a way. Yeah, is oh, more. <laughs> is more the analysis than like an actual physical representation of someone we know from history. I yeah. think I love that they went with that. Well, I can't wait to see it. I can't yeah, wait to see too. these covers. Yes. Yes. Christopher wants to have the, we want to have it in our hands. Um, but for sure. And I think what's wonderful is like, you know, Christopher had mentioned there's so much beyond just the print. So like, if you get the ebook um, there's, so many texts that they can't include in the print edition, just because, you know, it can be, it could be over a thousand pages, but it's not going to go to like 3000 pages. Yeah. Um, so there's so much online. There's an instructor's edition that I had the opportunity to look at that has so many ways to approach your teaching. Um, but like I'm saying, if you're not, if you're listening and you're not, um, you know, an instructor or, you know, you don't think you're going to be, like you're a student who wants to get this text to like brush up on your American literature knowledge, the general public, you know, you're all going to learn so much. And you're, you know, if you're a fan and you want to learn more about, especially the colonial period of America, indigenous literature, which we don't have a lot of texts of um, in print right now. Um, yeah, this is a text for you. This is for those literature lovers who just need, you know, something to rely on in your bookshelf. So, um, yeah, it's been wonderful talking with you, Christopher. I, you know, am just such a fan of getting to have this opportunity to hear directly from what it's like for you to be an editor in this experience of the anthology. Um, you know, I was going to say hysteria, but in the anthology excitement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for your excitement. I really appreciate it. I think it's a, uh, you know, a real achievement, um, both for the editors, for the staff, for everybody who consulted on it, you know, and gave advice and uh, wrote some of the introductory matter. Um, it really is a kind of... Um, collective product of a collective uh, which is lovely and it's wonderful to see texts that are a collaboration um yeah when you're not in isolation by yourself which yeah, is I know. how most people think of writing um but yeah. there are collaborative projects like an anthology so yeah. you know hopefully there'll be more of these collaborative i think it's nice to have a group of people together um oh i agree yeah so you know, everyone out there, get your hands on Broadview Presses. Oh, that's what I wanted to mention. You get 20% off with our code Ivory Tower. Um, oh, so use Ivory Tower in the promo code when you buy the Broadview Press um, American Literature Anthology. Um, thank you so much, Christopher, for joining. And we're going to say bye to the audience out there. Um, they have a lot to research now. They have a lot to look up on Google. Yeah. Um, Many books, <laughs> many books. Okay, bye to everyone out there. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director. 
Our team includes Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Nicola Arguello, our marketing assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's Mary. Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays. Thank you.